Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmarla. This is David Lichtenstein. This week, before Tisha B'Av, we're going to be speaking about one of the saddest things that we have in our community, the plight of older singles. We'll speak to a few singles who uh, are personally going through their, their personal apocalypse. And then we'll also speak to Rabbi Yitzhak Reichman, who's the founder of the Nasi Project, which is an effort by many righteous people among us to try to amend and to do what they can to lift these walls back up again. A few weeks ago, we spoke about Ponzi schemers and failed syndications. And this week, sadly, the national press it was all over the country in Lakewood, another arrest on a Ponzi scheme. A few weeks ago, we did a program about Ponzi schemes, about syndicators who aren't necessarily qualified. And we had on Rabbi Zalman Grouse, who's a big dying, but he also has a lot of experience in these matters. And he was really adamant. He says, you should not be investing with these so-called affinity investments. People with a yarmulke, who you know, you trust, it's in their private thing. He said he sat through too many divorces and too many. And he says, what do you need it for? Buy buy a, an index fund, right? It's it, it, Buy the S&P 500. And what do you need to have? It's liquid instantly. There's nobody could be taking money behind your back, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's Rabbi Grouse. Rabbonim should have been done something else. They should have been a long time ago, long time ago, to put big, 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 Big Moidores on all the streets and all the newspapers, stop investing. Stop investing. This is nonsense investing. You cannot invest by other people. It doesn't work. Not, never it works. Invest by other person. Person is doing wrong. He's a Niach Moisabal Kernatri. Whoever takes money is don't give him money. And it's a mitzvah Don't give anybody. He's Jewish. The Talmud Chochem is a Shem Shabbos. He's a, he's a tzaddik. Yes, but don't give him money. But it's no different. Anybody what gives money is stupid and he's wrong. We played it. And then I got a call. A guy called me. We get, we get a lot of calls. But the guy said, you know, you, a few calls on this. You're totally wrong. There are many honest syndicators. And by the way, I believe that. There are many honest syndicators. But the problem is, you're a younger man. You know how to learn a Rajba backwards and forwards. You know nothing about an uh, investor, yeah, about a syndicator, about a fund. How should you know? They say over that the base Halevi was going to brud. He was getting a divorce from his wife. He was maybe 20 years old. And he got a job. Uh, he, the only way to get the bread, he had no money, was to, to be an assistant balagola. Well, he knew nothing about being a balagola. And the entire way to bread, the balagola was giving him patch. What? That's not how you feed a horse. Bang, smack, boom. They get the bread. He goes into the show. He goes over to Ephraim Zalmargoli. Yes, he's 20 years old. And he starts talking to him. And Ephraim Zalmargoli says he knows Kalatira. So he sets him next to him. This Balagala comes into Shulchan Avimenech and he sees his assistant Balagala is sitting with Ephraim Zalmar Goliath and, and they're talking and learning and he felt terrible. Comes running over to him and says, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm Shuldix, I didn't know who you were. And I hit you. So the Beis Halevi looked at him and he said, listen, if you would have hit me because you said I didn't know how to learn, nope, I would be embarrassed. But you hit me because you said I don't know anything about horses. So what should... Younger man who knows Toysfis, who could who could go through the Rajbiz and <laughs> and a piske riyaz and the shach ba. What is he supposed to know about investments, right? And even or if you're a working person and it, this is not your area of expertise, how would you know? It's that's Rabbi Grouse's thing. What do you need it for? Buy the S and P five hundred. You you want to know how to do it? We'll tell you how. It's it's very easy. Call up a broker. It costs pennies, literally pennies. Okay, so I get a call this week. 
you're really talking badly about people that's wrong. Just this week, in the last few weeks in the papers, there's an investment firm in Lakewood that has a record going back years of earning 16.5%. I said, really? Wow, that's great. That's, that's a really good number. I mean, Warren Buffett does 15%. Um, this guy's 16. I'm like, it must be, you know, they're all geniuses. I said, like, he says, yeah, it's in the, in the Ami magazine. So I open up the Ami and there's an ad there, Blackbird Financial safeguarding our community's financial future. I think he must have listened to the program, is what he wrote. It's no secret that for the past few months have brought several investment schemes to light. Many from families have been irrevocably affected. Money that was set aside for children's weddings, retirements, and other life milestones have been lost, leaving the victims without the resources they relied upon. Exactly what we said. As someone in the investment industry for nearly a decade, I've seen how these schemes develop. Okay, it goes how typically management starts out with good intentions, blah, 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 blah. New investment investor funds are used to perpetuate. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. We need to use the experience of the past few months as a catalyst for improvement. Agree everything he said. In the same way, we would never eat food from a restaurant without a mashkiach. We are to hold our investment professionals to the same standard. Wow, it's amazing. In order to avoid the recent heartbreaks, we must demand that every Investment firm use a large, reputable third-party administrator. Third-party administrator exists to initiate capital funds, signed uh, chief investment officer, okay. And while it's true that no nation's people are more honest than Klal Yisrael, we're also instructed like Sitin Michshel. I believe it is the sake of the money manager as much as the element of the capacity wrongdoings be eliminated. It's really everything. And then the next page, it's from Beryl Solomon, entrepreneur. There's a guy with a very earnest look on his face, in my opinion. Waving his hand, looking at you, like, I'm with a giant yarmulke on his head. And it's, the title is, I moved my funds from the S&P 500 to Blackbird Financial. And here's why. Blackbird works with NAV Consulting, a large, reputable third-party administrator. This ensures that my funds are properly protected. Now, I know a little bit about money management. I'm scratching my head. NAV, what NAV does is it send out uh, statements. You know, if you're a fund, you send them to NAV. You don't want to have to deal with your 13,000 or 1,300. And they do the mailings and, this, and, the, and the, the filing. You know, whatever you need. It's, it's, like, it's sort of like the post office for, for this, right? They On their site, they say, we do absolutely no due diligence. You could send NAV, that the moon is made out of blue cheese, if you like blue cheese, and they will put it into the investor report. And that, yes, they do initiate all the capital transits. I'm thinking, this is really, Beryl, um, what you're relying on, that you moved your money to Blackbird Financial? That's strange. I said, you know, let me look at the website. Maybe there's a little more clarity over there. I looked at the website, and it says, uh, we use NAV Consulting. This ensures that our clients' funds are properly protected. Now, this sends an alarm to me. Anybody who knows, like, who graduated from, you know, the first class in things as a, a, a consulting group, NAV administrative group, that says on it, we do not do any at all. They do no due diligence. All we do is transfer the paperwork or the money that you request. That's the law. I'm like, why are you saying that? But that's, that, that's, I don't know, that's really scary. Then I see the next page is the titanium fund has a 16.5% return. And then I have the next page. It's a prequin investment fund ranking. Blackbird's performance is 27th among 4,000 industry peers, well within the top 1%. Blackbird Financial. Now, another thing bothers me, an alarm goes off. Prequin. Prequin says, again, specifically, we know due diligence. You tell us what it is, and we're going to put it in. And why do they do that? Because most funds are not going to lie. They know they'll get sued, etc. So they send in what their returns are. So, for example, Madoff was number one in Prequin for many years, until he wasn't. 
So you're using NAV and Prequin. Wow, that's really worrying. Then I come to the third page and it says, who's their auditor? It's the most important thing in the fund, Berkauer. So what did I do? Picked up the phone and I called Berkauer. And guess what I got? I got Mr. Berkauer. And I said, you know Blackbird? Do you audit them? He says, three or four years ago, they came to me. They want me to audit them. I sent them an engagement letter and they never signed it. And we never did a word, a single word, a single ice, a single letter of auditing for them. He says, in fact, someplace on their website, he says, we have an ongoing engagement. It can't be ongoing because there was never an engagement at all. He said, wow, those are three really worrisome signals. But then to reassure me, I got somebody sent me this video, this voice clip from Beryl Solomon. So I'm here in beautiful Lakewood, New Jersey, getting ready to show you guys an incredible company called Blackbird. I've invested some money with them and the returns that they see are not even normal. And I felt they deserve the spotlight. I'm gonna bring you along. I think you guys are gonna find this extremely educational, hopefully a little bit of entertaining as well. So I'm gonna go meet the boys, Harvey and Judah. They're number 27 at a 4,000 investment firm by Prequin, which is an independent ranking system. They have a secret sauce. When I hear secret sauce, I got to find out the secret. So come join us. I hope you enjoyed the ride. Guys, stay tuned. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be great. So I decided, let me call Beryl Solomon. Maybe he knows something. NAV is not, is not you know, diligence. Prequin is very misleading. Both are using big names that don't do this. Berkauer. So I call it Beryl Solomon. And here's my conversation with Solomon. Hey, David. How are Hi, you? Hi, Beryl. How are you? I'm so, Beryl, you, I've seen some of your videos. It seems you're very popular. <laughs> Sometimes, some days, I wish I wasn't so popular. How many, how, many listeners do you, how many listeners do you get? I'm curious. I have about a million, a million followers. A million followers. Wow, that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot of followers. Well, yeah. I'm calling you about. You probably know about this Blackbird thing, right? Yes. And I just wanted to know. I know you endorsed it and you unendorsed it. Like, give us some thoughts because when you have a million followers, you may have a lot of people who listen to it or don't hear the unendorsement. Is is there anything that happened or like what's the issue? You know what? I don't want to speak bad about anybody. I just am not endorsing the company anymore. I was paid. I'm an influencer. I do it all the time. I was paid to endorse a company, and I do not endorse them any longer. Can I ask you then a, a non-Blackbird question, just an influencer question? When we endorse somebody who is investing other people's money, there's a real chance that people will listen and then have a, like really be very damaged if, if it wasn't correct. So I would ask any influencer, what obligation does an influencer have to do a thorough due diligence on a financial product so they are not basically endorsing, like, you know, Tom Brady endorsed the FTX, right? Like, what I'm actually, obligation? I'm actually, I'm actually happy to do an interview with you. Right. Like a more, a more formal one. I'm actually just about to play tennis. So why don't we set up something a little bit more formal so we could go through this. I'm happy to do it. So pull out your calendar and I'm happy to do it too. Let's talk on Monday. I'm happy to sit down with you. Can you do can you do sun can you do Sunday? Happy to do a proper no I can't. I'm with my family on Sunday. Okay, let's talk on Monday. I love you dearly, okay? Thank you for the call. What, do you have a time on Monday that works? Now, this really is interesting. Solomon writes that he moved his funds from the S P five hundred to Blackbird Financial with a very errand to look on his face. And here he's saying, I have nothing to do with them. I only get paid, but 
I continue digging, and here's what's interesting. On the SEC filings, he has Burkauer as the auditor. Now, that's really problematic. I mean, I don't know if it's criminal, but it's not far away from it. So what do we have? We, we gave a speech about how don't invest with these private people because you're going to get ripped off. And then I get this wonderful voice clip from him saying that he found the Lakewood a 17, a 16.5% return. They have a secret source. He did not disclose that he was paid for it. The auditor is a lie. The SEC documents are a lie because they have them as the auditor. Um, additionally, the SEC documents, another problematic, lists him as a, a 506B. A 506B is a very limited offering that the uh, SEC does not require disclosure in many of the facts about. It has very limited disclosure, but also a 506B is not allowed to do advertising. So the auditor is wrong, filed with the SEC wrong. The 506B is wrong. Pequin it does not attest to anything because you could send them anything. And NAV Consulting only does mailing. It's like saying it came from the U.S. Post Office. It must be true. And by the way, if any of you would have lost money in this, and this is, by the way, with the title, let's go back to his title. The guy who did this says, he starts off, it's no secret that in the past few months have brought several investment schemes to light. Many from families have been irrevocably hurt. As someone in the investment, I see how these schemes, while it's true that no nation's people are more honest than Yisrael. needless to say, I believe it is for the sake of the money manager, as much as the client, that the capability of wrongdoing be eliminated. I mean, this whole thing is just, but if we were to call Beryl Solomon and say, Mr. Solomon, you know, how did you lead us down this thing? I lost so much money. If, if somebody investment, Beryl Solomon would doubtlessly say, I'm sorry, I can't talk now. I have to go play tennis. Go tell that to the families, the chasanim, the children's weddings, the retirement, and the other life milestones that your advisor went to play tennis. And there's a mitzvah lefasim. Don't give anybody is Jewish, the Tamil Chochem, is a Shemish Shabbos, is a Tzabik. Yes, but don't give him money. But it's no different. Anybody what gives money is stupid and he's wrong. Now, here's another call I wanted to discuss. We spoke about AI a number of weeks ago, and a number of Rabbanim came out with a uh, call Kaira against AI. Uh, in Square, they came out with a call Kaira, a number of Rabbanim in, in Brooklyn. And I want to make something clear. If you are a follower of one of these Rabbanim, you absolutely should be listening to the Rav, no matter what we say over here. This is any discussion. Look, my Rav said this, and that's it. Marsha Shiva said this, and that's it. Our discussion is, for those of us who don't necessarily, that's it's not our Moira Hira, and we want, are interested to figure out what is the appropriate way to behave? So we had a discussion. What could the possible dangers of AI be? Clearly, again, if you follow these Rabbanim or one of these Rashivas, you should be absolutely listening without any question. And many callers left the uh, that program feeling a little bit uncertain as to what the reason was, because there was the reasons that were stated in it we couldn't exactly uh, put our finger on. But here's one caller who tries. Hello, you're talking about AI, and you're trying to say that there's nothing wrong with it. So it's true that there's no, you can't talk schmutz with it, and you can't talk um, anti-anything, can be a group of people. However, there is a lot of information there, yeah? So you would say that information itself is not a problem, but if you check out the reason for decline in religion in the West, the, one of the main reasons is the spread of information, because people know so much. People start thinking, um, I'm right, maybe Yen is right, maybe there's other and eventually most of the people don't believe in anything. So it definitely is a problem to hear this guy, just the spread of information itself. I think that's the main concern of the Ramona case.
I mean, so basically saying that technology has caused an erosion of, of Amuna and Ptachan, and he, he factually is right. I mean, the world has never been less religious than it is today. Certainly America has never been uh, less religious than it is, less people going to a religious institution, be it Jewish or not. But technology is the enemy in some part of religion. But here's the question that I will leave you with. So agreed, and that's a fact. You can't fight the statistics. So does that mean we should live sort of in a behind a curtain, uh, a glass wall, and say technology doesn't exist? It does exist. There's nothing we can do about it. Or do we say, look, now that it's here, not dealing with it is more damaging than dealing with it. And that's the question. Whereas not dealing with it means if if our community becomes uh, you know less less educated, poorer, etc., is that better uh, without the technology? Or saying, look, let's try to. It's it's a fact. It's here, and let's deal with it. That's sort of more of the debate. I get so many calls about this. I want to just put it on an even footing. It's not dissimilar to the internet debate. I mean, one way of dealing with it is to say, look, let's never have access, make believe it doesn't exist. And the other one says, look, you are going to bump into it. You can't take a job where you don't have to deal with it. So unless you want to remain a clay kaidish or, or, or just do blue collar labor, you are going to have to deal with it. So let's discuss it and figure out what is the appropriate way. Is it with filters? Is it you know not having smartphones? It's whatever those cases be. How do we deal with this tsara that is in front of us? Before we go to our program, I want to say a small thought. Most people sort of look at Tishabab as just a go to shul. It's a very sad day and. Not that much to be gained from it, honestly, except the sense of grieving over the Khurban. And additionally, the juxtaposition of Tishabav to Yimei Elul and Yom Narayim, it's just by happenstance that the, these two Yom Taivim come next to each other. We really see in the Kadmainim, not, not like this, the, as early as the Marsha writes, he says there's 21 days between Shavasa Batamas and Tishabav, and there's 21 days between the Rosh Hashanah and uh, Shemini Atzeres. Then you have, they have that the Chesidim speak about that a lot in the Chesidish you know, And then you have uh, also the Chesidish Yisvarim, Arboimim, Kaidim Yitzirah, Savlad, is Tishabav is 40 days before Ish So they make a, a Kesher between Tishabav and the Yom Hanerayim. And I want to try to say a thought about that. And that is that people get stuck in the status quo. People get stuck, you know, in the wrong seat in Shul. It taking a wrong position in a in a relationship, in a business, in personal medias, and they just get comfortable with it. It could be because it's always hard to change. You know, Hergel, Regilus is one of the one of the hardest things to change. They say a story that um, I was a fellow in England. He was trying to uh, show his friend. He said the power of Hergel, and they saw like a retired soldier walking down the street, and he had bought something in the store, two bags, and he said, "Watch." He said to the other, how strong is Hargal? So he said in a loud, commanding voice, Attention! And the soldier on the other side of the street jumped to attention, dropped both bags, and like eggs came rolling out. But he stood there with his hand up. That's it. He was used to attention. So that's called Hargal. Also, you know, it takes a lot of effort. And we're complacent. We just keep on living with a bad situation more and more, like getting sucked in. So, so problems are complex. We say, is that really the problem? Or is it the other thing that's the problem? Is this just part of it? But when the walls come tumbling down, when the building collapses over there, we lose our hair goal. We lose our complacency. And the problem comes to light. And all of us have that. We have some problem or some problems that are just lingering and lingering. We don't have the courage or the will to face it. And one day the walls come tumbling down and we have no choice. So Tishabav is really a precursor. It's a Hagdama to Elul. Because if we can't see 
if the walls don't come tumbling down, if we can't sort of say, look, this is it, this really, the L doesn't really stand much of a chance. And you know, I'll tell you something, even by Milanu Gogol and Moshe Rabbeinu, right, Ray Mehemda, the morale and the, uh, and Tafaris Yisrael and Gimel and the, uh, the Goyen, Sporting the Hagoyes over there, Rabbi Shua Hartman's wonderful morale. He says that Sefer Dvarim is different than the other Svarim of the first four Svarim. It's like the Sefer of Klal Yisrael, much more like human. It's Musa, it's Techacha, you can hear a Rebbe talking to you. What happens? What changes? Moshe Rabbeinu was told at the end of Bamidbar, and he says, you're not going to bring them into Eretz Yisrael, the Maisa Miraglim, two reasons. You're not going, and here is Moshe at the end of his life, knowing he's not bringing them into Eretz Yisrael. All the walls have come crashing down, and he writes a different Sefer. And the, the, the Goyen, the, the, the Magad brings from the Goyen, first Sefer was like Mepiagura, and here it's Moshe talking about with his pain and his humanity and his, why did this happen? Moshe had to change, the walls came tumbling down. And look at Kal Yisrael, after the Chorban Abayas, the walls came tumbling down, what was created? Teresh There was no Teresh Abolpeh in Bayes Rishon, right? The, the last Nevi'im came up from Gaila, and then went to Teresh So Chorban created Teresh we see the collapse of Sura and Pompadisa, right, created all the Tyre and the Gullus, the Dalit Shvuyim, Chasidus, after Shapsi Tzvi. So this Tishabav, I want to leave you with a thought. When you're sitting on the floor saying, Kenneth, let's give a little bit of thought to our own personal Tishabavs. Maybe you don't have one. Most of us have something that we're suffering with greatly. And can we think of the walls tumbling down upon us? Think of our tish above, whatever it may be, what your personal issue is, the walls tumbling down and grieve and accept it. Tish above is about accepting it after the 21 days. Just look, this is the reality. Because if we can do that, then it's really of, of L. I accept it. If I accept it, that situation is broken, then there's a possibility for change. Let's go to our riddles of the week. So the parsha says, Lo saguru mipneish. And the Safri says, Lo saguru mipneish. Shema toimer, a judge is going to say, a dayan. Misyore ane mipneish ploini shema yarig espini. O shema yadlik eskadishai. Sometimes judges could be in danger. O shema yikatsei tetsdetiyaisai. Talmud Loimer Lo Saguru Mipneesh. And Raman passing this way in Hocha Sanhedrin, Halacha Aleph. And the Tumim says, Afilu Bibori Hezeka Asal Adayin Lishamid Menadin. And by the way, for you, those listening in the Tri State area, just a year ago, or was it two years ago, the only child, could you imagine this, of a judge, Esther Salas, was killed by one of her, uh, somebody that she put away. She and her husband were celebrating their son's 20th birthday. A man posed as a delivery man, rang the bell, and he shot uh, Daniel to death. He also shot her husband three times. She was uh, in the basement during the attack. She wasn't attacked. Other judges have been uh, killed as well. So being a judge, I guess, Kim does have some risk. So the question is, we have a klal. Every mitzvah nitzcha, mipnei sakhanas nefashis. So why isn't the mitzvah of leisagur mipnei nitzcha mipnei sakhanas nefashis too? And here's our second riddle. Atem oivrim begvulachechem b'nei esav hayoshvim b'seir. You're going to pass through the land of seir of esav. V'yiru mechem, they'll fear you. V'nishmartem oid, they'll be scared of you. Problem is, chayrus astira. Here it says that Ben Yisrael will be afraid of Klal Yisrael. 
In Parshas Chukas, what does it say? A Yetzei Melech Edoim Lekrasai Ba'am Kavei Gubiyad Chazaka That's Chaf Chaf in Bamidbar. And what does Rashi say? Gubiyad Chazaka Haftochas Keinenu Vayadayim Yedei Esav They had Haftochas Vayadayim Yedei Esav And therefore Esav was not afraid of them. So here his here it says that you should you, you don't have to worry about Esav. In Parshas Chukas, Parikhaf Asichaf says the exact opposite. They had the Avtach of Esav. They walked with confidence. Those are our two riddles of the week. I remember I'll say from my father, he said somebody once asked another Gadol. He said he has a choice between a Gaisha surgeon and a Jewish surgeon. Which one should you take? We said take the the Gaisha surgeon because he have a haftacha al charbuchatichya. You live by the knife, by the sword. He says for a surgeon a guy would be better. Okay, not halacha. We're just saying derech drush. But these are our two riddles of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our fabulous Shir. Joining us from Baltimore is Sari Zaller, who's going to share with us the most poignant story. Welcome, Sari. Well, thank you. Thank you. Tell us your story. You went to high school, and life was wonderful. I went to high school. I had a great childhood, a wonderful, amazing, supportive family. Um, I went to high school in Brooklyn, and I grew up in Queens, went to high school in Brooklyn. And then I got married at 21 and moved to Lakewood. It sounds like a really, a really like straight out of the, right out of Ami and Mishpacha magazine, you wish like perfect, right? Yeah, it was a perfect, you know, perfect scenario. I moved to Lakewood, I married an adorable boy from a Greek family, moved to Lakewood, was very happy there. I loved it there. Um, and then I had a little girl a year and a half later, and then almost four years later, another baby, a little boy. My marriage was challenging pretty much from the beginning, but... You know, I worked very, very hard for a bunch of years to keep it together. And then when my son was a year old and my daughter was uh, almost five, um, she was four, she was four and a half, we separated and I got divorced. And at that time, this was a, uh, my daughter is 21 now, so this was a long time ago. This was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And at that time, living in Lakewood, there were not many divorces. There really were not many. Like, it was, it was, a, big, it was a real stigma attached to it. You know, it wasn't wasn't an easy thing to do, and it was a very lonely time and a very hard, challenging road ahead of me. So that was in those years. I was it was hard. It was it was, it was hard times, but I had a really really nice uh, a nice neighborhood, good neighbors. My ex family was incredible to me, so I had their support, which was nice. Um, and then I, and I had my own family who were incredible to me over the years. Really, I've been through a lot. So what what was hard? It sounds wonderful. The hard it sounds it sounds wonderful, right? But really, the hard part is that no one can understand and really get into the mind of a of a of a 
a woman, I'm sure men too, in their own way, but a woman who is who's divorced, who's raising children on her own, who's different from everybody, who's there's a stigma attached, there's, there's shame, there's guilt, there's 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 loneliness, there's so much there's so much there that no matter how much support you have and how much love you have surrounding you, there's an, an incredibly lonely, heavy feeling that you live with, especially. You know, not only if you have children, but especially if you have children, because, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have anyone to really share that with and share the ups and downs of the day. And nobody really, truly wants to hear, you know, how much your daughter ate for lunch or whatever. Um, so there's a, there's a loneliness. There's a really heavy loneliness that exists that even if you have it together and even if you have all the support in the world, there's just, there's just nobody that understands what it's really, really like inside. Share a story of like something that you remember from that period. So one story that I had, which was so painful. Right after the summer, actually, I was separated. My daughter was, had a, she was going into pre one and I couldn't get her into school. And no matter how hard I tried, I, I, I literally went knocking on principal's doors, and I begged them, and I said, please take my daughter. And she's an adorable little girl. She's so cute. And I'm, no, we're full. We can't. One principal told me, we, we can't, we can't take your, your child. We can't, you know. She, she has, you know, a lot of baggage with her. And I said, she's an adorable girl. She says, well, Daddy, the morning is rushed. I'm not going to her just like every other girl. And she said, I'm so sorry. I just can't take her. And then there was another um, school that when they had this VOD to get her. She thought it was, she thought it was sort of like, um, Catchy, like like a like a like a yeah, like a virus exactly. sometimes. Right, like we're you know your daughter must be traumatized. She's going through so much. You're separated. We, we just can't do that right now. And we you had it, And you had no sense that a school would be willing to help out rather than like let's share right. let's share with it. So I didn't feel like I did, did not feel like in the end I had this amazing woman in my life who took her in. But when I knocked on the doors of bunches of schools beforehand, there was this feeling of like, we can't take you. We don't want you. One principal said, I really would take you, but if I took you, I would lose other parents. That, those are the words to use. There was, there was this, you know, I mean, the world has changed a little bit, but I think there's still this stigma. And there's this, like, you're, you're, you're damaged good, you know, and your child must be definitely having emotional issues if, you know, she's, she's a child from a divorced home. So I couldn't get my daughter into school. The night before school started, I'm going to say her name because she was Sadekas and she's not alive anymore. This is Nurek. She was an incredible person. She took my daughter in the night before school started. I went to get her a uniform and I went over, I went to thank her and she said, thank me. We, we want your daughter. We're taking her with open arms. We love her. And that's the feeling that I had in that school. But, but it took it's me. unusual. Yeah. And it was now, I read, I read a story, you know, I read a story years ago. I don't remember where about a little girl who had cancer. Mm-hmm. And all her hair fell out. Hmm. and um, she was very embarrassed to go to school, and the teacher shaved her own head. Wow. Wow. That's but incredible. But you're saying that's not the norm. That's very unusual. No. Right. Right. That's, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. Right. So when you're, when you're going through something challenging, everybody really, you know, says they care and they want to help, but when it comes down to it and they have to give of themselves, that's when you realize that you're really sometimes alone, and that's the challenging part of the situation. That was a story that really stood out for me. It was probably the most heart-wrenching, challenging time. Here I have this daughter who altogether I felt so guilty for what I'm putting her through and what she's going through. And now she's living in a, in a home that's different from everybody else. And, I, and the day before school started, all her friends were saying, were you going to school? And she couldn't even answer. So it was, it was a really, really definitely, and it was, it was an aha moment. Like, no matter how much I think I have and how much support I have and how normal, quote-unquote, I think I am, at the end of the day, I'm not. I'm different. And I'm, that's how I'm viewed. There's this stigma attached to being a single mother, being divorced that, you know, was very painful back then for sure. I don't know what it's like now. I'm, I'm hoping that, that 
you know, people are more sensitive now than they used to, but I probably, you know, it's probably challenging in a lot of ways, similar to what it was like for me. So how, how long were you single for? So I have actually a little bit of an interesting story. I was single for two years, and then I remarried somebody from Baltimore. I moved to Baltimore, um, picked up my kids, moved to Baltimore. It was a very, very big, bold move because I had a business in Lakewood, and my children were happy, and I moved here. Um, and unfortunately... It was a marriage that did not last very long at all. It was very quick, very painful, and it was a lot for me and for my children. Um, and at that point, and I had moved to Baltimore, I knew nobody here. I had no family. I didn't have friends yet. It was a very quick marriage. Um, but I stuck it out because it was the middle of the school year, and I didn't want to uproot my kids. Long story short, I ended up staying because it was just too complicated at that point to pick up and move. Um, so that was a very small thing in my life, but I think is actually very a very common occurrence, and it's something that I give a lot of guidance to today to girls who are going through dating and remarriage. You know what what to be careful and what to look for and what to make sure what, you still When you say common, what was com- what was common about it? No, the common thing is I think that that a lot of you know, a lot of divorced girls jump into marriages that they think feel right, but it's important to understand and know what your needs are and what you're looking for and not just to look for somebody that's, quote, unquote, the opposite of your first husband. Or, you know, it's, it's a long conversation, but it's, it's a lot of, there's a lot of guidance that I give to girls that call me who are looking to get remarried. And, um, they, it, you know, in hindsight, there were a lot of mistakes that I made, um, but that was probably the most painful time in my life because that was, you know, now, now I'm divorced twice. Here I am thinking I'm normal, I'm regular, I'm this 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 is just crazy. Like I have, you know, I had this very close relationship with my first ex and was, and everything was really like falling into place for me. And then it came crashing down again. And I had two small children that I slept along on the journey. So it was horrible. And I was living in a town where I didn't know anybody. And my ex-husband, my second ex-husband, was from this town, so it was horribly painful. And that that took a lot out of me. That was really really hard. Um, Tell me a story about horrible. The horrible feeling was the, the shame. I think the overall feeling in general um, with divorce is the shame. I think that there's just so much. There's a, there's a feeling of fail. You failed. You failed your marriage. You failed the relationship. You failed your children. You failed. You failed your parents and 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 siblings. Like you were, you know, there's what to be ashamed of. You you were not successfully married. Um, and there's a lot of judgment that goes into it. So for sure, after that, you know, even though it was such a quick little in my life, but it was, you know, after I got divorced the first time, I was 100% sure I was going to get remarried and be happy, you know, because in my mind, I had everything to offer. I was, you know, I would be a great wife, and it was just unfortunate what had gone on in my second, my first marriage, and everything would be great. So that, that trauma of my second marriage was really, really very painful. It was very quick, and my children really almost like, went through, they went through it pretty unscathed, like they were, they came out of it pretty Pretty, pretty okay because they didn't get attached. They didn't have kind of like, you know, we moved houses and then we moved again. Um, it was hard. It was very hard. And But um, I really, I made a commitment to myself at that time. I'm not going to let this take me down. I'm not going to be a sad mother. I'm not going to be a mother that doesn't have a healthy home. So I Sorry, really... But I, I, I want to talk about this just for a minute. Um, a lot of divorced people um, mm-hmm. suffer from financial issues because, yeah. You know, uh, you know, bullying. You're saying the main that wasn't your issue. Your issue was just you're saying it's the shame. So I think the reason why I keep bringing up the shame is because I think that that was the the um the strongest feeling I had through that. You know, like every time I child and invite a friend over and the friend would say, "Oh, why don't you come to my house instead?" Even though it could be, I do it all the time now with my children because my child, let's say, doesn't want to go to their house or is not the kind of kid that likes to play at other kids' houses. Every time I, anything like that would happen, I would automatically assume oh, they probably just don't. So, so let me ask you a question: Is it 
Is it is as a community, are we unusually judgmental or is it mostly in your mind? I think we are. I think as a community, we are unusually judgmental. I think we automatically assume that somebody who's going through something as challenging as that is like a little bit of a nebach or maybe there's something dysfunctional there. I do think so. I do. I, I myself sometimes have to catch myself from going down that road. I think that we are. I think we're a very, I think we're a community where we we have very high expectations of what a quote-unquote normal family unit looks like, of what a normal family dynamic looks like, like what children should dress like, what they should behave like, what they should, you know, what they should look like, how from they should be. We are in general a very judgmental community with very high expectations. And I think that I do think so. I think that, that, that girls, you know, raising children alone, a single mother, fall into that category of, you know, we're being judged. I do. I think so. I, I felt it, and I see it today. I see it today because I, I, now I'm on the giving end of that, and I'm, you know, helpful with girls that are going through divorces. There's an incredible organization, Sister to Sister, that I think does not get enough recognition. They are that one you, that they're really, that organization that really gives a divorced girl a feeling of you're not alone. You're okay. We're here. We have your back. And it's so needed because as a whole, I think our community is lacking. I do. So I what can we do? How, how do we reduce the judgmentalism that people have towards divorced people? I think that overall, first of all, I think we have to, you know, there's a lot of like chatter and gossip about, you know, when a divorce happens, which is normal. But like, whose fault is it? What happened? You know, nobody knows. Nobody really knows whatever happened in the divorce until, um, unless you were the person literally inside the room with that couple when they were going through their issues. Nobody knows. I think there's a lot of judgmental, you know, as a whole, as a community, we should work on that. There doesn't need to be so much chatter and talk about what happened. It doesn't matter. And it could be, it was, And here's, know, it, here's what I would just add to, to what you, your point, okay? There's a lot mm-hmm. of people who talk about Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara. But I think a lot of Lashon Hara is misplaced. In other words, you know, did you see his yarmulke is the wrong color? Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, no. That's, right. Lashon Hara is when you say, she's divorced, we don't want her kids to come over. That's, that's, the, that's Lashon Hara. This right. is why the divorce happened. There's where, it, where it's significant and impactful and painful. Words turn, get turned into weapons that affect people's lives. That's the real Lashon Hara. Not, don't tell her her Lashon Hara had too many raisins in it. That's not right. the intent of Lashon Hara. Lashon Hara, oh, words that cut and bruise and hurt and destroy, that's Lashon Hara. Now, yeah. it could be how luckily the others fall into Lashon but that's not the intent. No, I, it's true. And I think also when there's chatter, people just assume, you know, oh, my goodness, that, you heard about that divorce? That's terrible. I know she's just very difficult. You know, like, I, I know that he had a hard amount. And then before you know it, that girl's children is not being invited over because they just assume that the, girl, the mother's difficult and therefore they don't want to associate with that. And then there's no inviting for Shabbos meals. And it's very how, quickly. How often so, were you invited for Shabbos meals? Um, I really was. I had a few families that I kind of, you know, was invited to all the time. I had like a standing invitation that I, I really tried hard not to be alone for Shabbos meal. So I had, I, I really did have that support, but it wasn't a great feeling. It wasn't. It was, it was, you know, a little bit of a never feeling, like having to be a guest at Shabbat, Shabbat, Shabbat people. I understand, but you're saying, you're saying community was very supportive as far as Shabbat, Shabbat meals, which is a beautiful thing. I wouldn't say, I, I would say supportive. I wouldn't say very supportive because at the end of the day, I have, I think that there's not enough awareness in this. Department. Like, I think that, like, I had my two families that invited me over and over, but I wasn't constantly getting invitations. I wasn't getting invitations from all my neighbors, and, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are afraid to have single women at their table, like, you know, for whatever reason. Um, I think a lot of that goes on. I think, I think, I, I don't think, you know, I definitely was not feeling like, you know, every week I was getting five, six invitations, hey, what are you doing for Shabbos? But I, I had where to go, but I, I, it was still a lonely feeling. It was still a lonely feeling. It was. It was not, it was not an outpouring of support. 
I think, you know, when someone's husband dies, there's an outpouring of support. And I think it, it should be similar when a woman is alone. I do. I think there's, it's, it's a horribly lonely distance, um, even if you're not really lonely. And I think that we need to step up our game with that kind of support. I do. I think we're lacking in this area. I think, unfortunately, today there's a lot of single women, single girls, single mothers, single divorcees that don't have children and we have to step up our game because these girls, these people are lonely. It's, it's a very, and they're not nebuch. Just because they're lonely doesn't mean that they're nebuch. They're just lonely because they're feeling judged, because they're feeling left out, because they're, you know, they're, they're not feeling like they're being included in the community, at, you know, in the same way if they were married. And I think we have to step up our game. I think, I think we're majorly lacking at apartment. Okay. And continue your story. So that parsha was painful. I put it behind me. I moved on. And, and then I was, I was a single mother again, living in Baltimore for another, I think it was four to five years. And then um, I met my husband, who I'm married to now, Baruch Hashem, for 10 years. We have three beautiful children together. We have, I have four stepchildren. I have two of my own. I have, now I have a grandson. Um, I have, you know, and I had, we have three little boys, a six-year-old, five-year-old, five-year-old, and a four-year-old together. And Baruch Hashem, and now... You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I wake up every morning. Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. I feel so lucky. I have such a good life. I went through, you know, 12 years of Gehenim. And I would do it all over again to be where I am today. But it was not, it was not an easy road. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't an easy road from everything, from, you know, the stigma of getting my children into camp and to filling out the forms when they say married or divorced. And then I know they're going to start looking into my child because the parents are divorced. It's a difficult child. Um, you know, there's a lot. There's, you know, when I, when now when I enrolled my oldest child into a yeshiva, my oldest of these youngest three, it was so refreshing. I turned to my husband. I said, I'm just filling out the forms, and I'm writing Yona and Sari Zahler, and I'm writing married, and I don't have to write other sets of parents and grandparents. And it's so refreshing because, yes, it's, you know, it's very nice not to have to fill out some, you know, more letters and lines and whatever, but it's not that. It's the feeling of now we're normal. Now we're considered normal. These children are going to be enrolled in school Normal children from normal homes, why do I have to have that feeling? Why did I have that feeling of my other children? I always filled, filled out those forms with such a heavy heart, knowing I was being so judged. Whoever was reading that form is judging me, you know? Um, so, but for them, now I, I really do. I have a beautiful family, you know, and then, now we have to deal with Shadokim, which is a whole other end of the, the issues. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very, very... It's, it's a hard parsha, and there are unfortunately so many girls going through this. I have a question for you. The schools try to keep divorced kids out. That's what it sounds like, right? So honestly, I did not find any Baltimore at all. I really didn't. I had that in Lakewood. I only had one child I had to enroll in. In, in Lakewood, you said you felt they wanted to keep you out because the kids were divorced. Your son was yeah, kind of, for sure. I mean, it was, so it was very I would hard. I would just challenge the schools, right? and I'm sure we have a lot of machanchem listening. You know, if I had a school, and I support schools, but I don't have a school. But I would be very proud to say we have the children of divorcees in every class. We have Almanis, Yusayimim. We have handicapped children. Wouldn't it be nice to say, you know, the Torah, the most oft-quoted mitzvah in the whole Torah, is Ger Yosayim Valmana Loisano 36 times, right? And, and the Holy Ghost is but it's, Rashi says it doesn't just mean Ger Yosayim. It means any umlal, Rashi says. So the Raisa, anybody who's suffering, and the children of divorcees suffer as much, maybe more than the children of Almanis. And we take these children in because we don't just talk about the Tyra, we actually practice the Tyra. It's certainly much better if we had all kids from beautiful families, like Aryan-type children. But we don't. We, we keep the Tyra. 
And you know what the children, your child, if they come to our school, will learn? They'll learn a Havas Yisrael. They'll learn sensitivity. They'll learn how to take care of somebody, maybe a child who can't see, or a child who's blind. They'll learn real midas. They'll learn in our school. They'll learn what it means to be a Yid, but not just, you know, intellectually, but basiya. But we have a show. When, when there's a kid who's a Yasim comes to the show, he sits at Mizrah, I put him next to me. But if that's what the Torah is, wouldn't it be beautiful we had a school, we said our school really lives the Torah. And that if there's a kid, Rahman al-Islam, like I said, that story with cancer, you know what? The teacher shaves their head so that the kid should be at home. That's the type of school that, I think that would be beautiful. I think that's that's the Shensta type of children you could have, the Shensta type of, of school that you could have. That's a school that would really set an example. Example in, in Midas, in your Shemayim, that would be a real school. It would be very nice. It would be beautiful. I think there should be a lot of talk about this. I think there should be a lot of, you know, movement on this. I think we, we need to get involved on that level. Wouldn't it be nice if a parent, before they apply to a school, said, how many Almanist children of Almanist and assignment do you have in your school? Or, for that matter, divorcees. Because if you don't have, I don't want to send to your school because it's not Tyridica values. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? It would be a nice thing. Uh, as, parents, and, you know, the parents I, ask that question. Right. I, 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 I can't imagine that happening, but if it could, that would be incredible. That would be incredible, and everybody listening should absorb that for a second. Absorb, absorb it and, and listen and understand what that means. The children, um, our children are children. They're small children. They want to learn and they want to they be social and they want to grow just like your children. They're just like your children. They're normal, healthy children. And the more we accept and the more we love and the more we accept them amongst our own, the healthier these children will be. And as, as, as a nation, honestly, as, as, as together, it, it will make such a difference in our community overall. I really believe it. I think that there's so many stigmas in general, but it's, it's a fault of not only, yes, it is a fault of not only, it's, it's not only the school's fault. It's not, because I was told by that one school in Lakewood, if I take you in, I will have parents that will leave. That is not okay. That's not okay. And no. I believe she felt that way. Yeah, and those parents are not sharing with you, that's just... 100%. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Joining us from Lakewood is Rabbi Yitzchak Reichman. He's representing the Nasi Project. Rabbi Yitzchak is a Talmud of many yeshivas, Sharatayra. They liked him so much at Sharatayra that Rosh Hashiva took him to be a son-in-law. He's 15 years, uh, learned, to, learned to Lakewood, Rosh Chabur, a good part of the time. Welcome, Rabbi Yitzchak. Tell us, what is the Nasi Project? So the Nasi Project was founded to deal with the, what we call today the Shidduch Crisis. I don't think it had that name at that time. You know, the difficulties that thousands of the nice Israel in our community face, um, taking them years and years to find the Zivug, some of them still waiting for the Zivug. And um, we were not the ones who discovered, but other people before us, Nachi Levavitz was involved and uh, others, who recognized that there was a numerical problem which we could explain in a minute, but just we'll just call it that. And Nasi was founded to try to deal with that issue. That was the initial motivation to create this organization. Like anything, a systemic issue it takes a lot of work to change, and uh, it's still 15 years later, um, and we still haven't seen all the change that we would like. But um, as people have heard from recent headlines, there looks like there might be some movement on that. But along the way, Nasi got involved with some of the smaller issues, helping individuals. You know, dealing with coaching, helping individual girls who have difficulty accessing the network, and, and you know, so it's been involved in those smaller projects to help individuals as we still dive in and try to do our part in trying to fix the larger macro issue. Um, 
how do you know there is a shipment crisis? So we'll start with anecdotal um, evidence. That's definitely how things start. I know people who dated uh, for years. It took them, you know, a very long time to find a zivuk. Um, I still know people. You know, my wife has friends who are still still looking. And uh, so there's always the anecdotal stories. That that's really what gives you the connection. And when you start hearing so many of them, you start thinking this is a crisis. But to really you know, assess it numerically, there were a number of surveys that we tried to do, um, definitely speaking to Shachanim, who always said that, you know, they don't know what to do with the number of girls that they have. They just don't have enough voice for them at a certain point. And, uh, and then, you know, trying to, as much as we could, with the resources we had, try to quantify the problem, how many single girls we compiled lists um, in the in our community and trying to make lists. It's not, we did not reach the gold standard, which would be a real randomized study of, uh, you know, picking random classes, let's say, and chasing them 10, 15 years later, seeing where everyone is. But um, the all the people we speak to, which is uh, basically any Shachan who you ever heard of um, in America, um, have all confirmed that this is their experience. And the amount of surveys that we were able to do to quantify it all seemed to support that. Is there a percentage of girls that will, of women, that will never get married because there's just a shortage of boys? So, you know, that's a prediction that we don't want to make. Well, it's not a um, prediction. I mean, you yeah. know, if there are girls in their, in their 50s, we could assume that they're not going to have kids anymore. I mean, do we, do we see that? Yes. So there definitely are women um, who are already reaching middle age who there are not enough not married, never married men in the community for them. That is a fact. Many of them, you know, either try to find out of the community, which Baruch Hashem does happen sometimes. You know, also we have to think about the knock-on effects on those other communities. But, but at least from our perspective, let's say, you know, if a, a young woman is already reaching, let's say, 10 years in our world and hasn't found anyone and then goes outside and finds someone from a different community, that, you know, that's great. But that does happen sometimes. Um, also there's the Zivik Shani, you know, you know, uh, definitely are in situations where no one's looking to be a Zivik Shani to start with, um, but sometimes that's what happens. So in terms of, you know, Zivik Rishan within our community, the numbers do make it very difficult for everyone to find a match. It's basically mathematically not possible, unfortunately, given, given the situation, but, but we do hope everyone will find someone. If you know, if not, if not, if not within our community, then outside. Hopefully, a person who's from and then be a good husband, and uh, or find someone who's been previously married. A big part of the, what we call the shield crisis is really we could look at it two ways. Part of it is the fact that it's taking so long, even if they do find at the end. But you know, ten years of Gehenim of trying to find someone horrendous, torture, and that itself we would define as a crisis, and also. Even the ones who, let's say, finding someone who's been previously married, there's many women who've been previously married who would like to get remarried, and they really feel they're really bearing the brunt of the numerical problem. That uh, much easier for an almond or uh, someone who's been divorced to find uh, a shidduch if he wants someone who hasn't been married yet, he could find that. The other way is extremely difficult, and uh, that's they're really bearing the brunt of the crisis. So. I mean, the British all made, you know, 50-50 men and women, boys and girls. What's causing this crisis? Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that. There's actually a rivash that says that there's the cost of 50-50 lukim, something along those lines, um, like you said. But the when you have very rapid growth, like Baruch Hashem we have, just look around, 
see the exponential explosive, explosive growth of the film world. If you have very rapid growth and you have large gaps between the ages, then just the numbers don't add up. You know, just for argument's sake, if we have 123-year-olds and 105 19-year-olds, then there's going to be five left over if those are the matches. So it's going to ter- depend on what the average difference between the ages, and it's going to depend on the rate of annual growth. That's going to determine how many are being stuck in this numerical problem. But um, this is something which has been observed in all over the world. This is not something about Orthodox Jews. When I was first doing research onto this 15 years ago, um, I came across some economic study about how dowry inflation in India was connected to age gap because they also have very rapid growth and they ask for dowries and the bigger the age gaps, the more women are being left over, the higher their fathers have to offer to get them married. We have something like that maybe in our community as well. There was another article about polygamy rates in Arab countries being connected to age gaps. It's just, you know, pretty straightforward arithmetic almost that if every year is larger than the year before, and on average, you're having significant difference in the ages, then you're going to have a remainder. And that's what we're dealing with as well. Now, do them have this as well? And does the Sephardic community have this as well? Uh, let's go past our communities. The same, does everybody have the same prices? So they have very different experiences. Um, Hasidim, the boys start much younger. The boys and girls start around the same age, um, 17, 18, and therefore they do not have leftover girls. They happen to have leftover boys. Now, we mentioned before, the reverse says, Exactly. It's a revash, let's say, in the Matthias of today, based on uh, the current data. It seems to be more boys are born every year than girls. There's a biological reason for that. But um, it seems like in the earlier times, a lot of those extra boys would die from illness or other issues. But for some now, things have improved. So we don't know exactly. Um, there are more boys. Like, if you look at even class class sizes in Lakewood or other places, there are more boys enrolled in first grade than girls in first grade. That's just how it is. Even though there might be higher rates of other issues with boys, um, you know, but in higher rates of maybe different uh, developmental issues and things like that. But there seems to be more boys, and that has been suggested, explains the issue with Hasidim. There is actually someone right now who's trying to do like a real scientific study of that, crunching their numbers. The Hasidim are much better than us, you know, organized and have, they have you know, records, much better records of their enrollments, their births, their, you know, how many boys, how many girls. You could look at it, get all the numbers, and there's actually someone now who's working on crunching the numbers and showing how the problem that they have of leftover boys is because they don't have a large enough gap, um, and you need to have a larger gap in order to even out the numbers. And by the Sardim, we never did the research on that. Um, their rates of growth are not the same. We're not talking about the Shivish ones, just the general Sardish world. You know, they have, tend to have smaller families and um, their age gaps are actually bigger than ours tend to be. So, you know, we, we, at the early days of Nasi, we were asked to try to help out in the, in, in that, that, the Saudi world. Unfortunately, we didn't feel like we had enough of understanding on the ground of how the dynamics of the community works, so we're not really, uh, we don't really operate in that community. So would it make sense then for a, a, girl, a girl from the Litvisha community who says, look, there just aren't enough boys here to marry a Hasidish boy where there's a shortage of girls? Definitely in theory. I, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, but the, the question is how Hasidish and how Yeshivish, um, they have to, have to be a good shidduch. But definitely I would encourage any girl who identifies as part of the Yeshivish world who is close enough 
for the Hasidic world, maybe the little Hymish, maybe the brother wears a gato, you know, I don't know, the Madrigas, you know, or has a, doesn't shave, etc. to try, you know, to network and see if there's someone in the Hasidic world who's a little bit closer, maybe he also went in Brisk, maybe he's not, you know, maybe he's in BMG for sure. Try to find him. It definitely makes sense. Yeah, obviously, there's a spectrum in both communities, you know, to take someone from, you know, hardcore Williamsburg and match them up with, you know, let's say, you know, hardcore five towns is not going to work necessarily. So, but definitely, um, in theory, that that would help the numbers, and in in the situations when it's possible, I've definitely encouraged people to look into it. Now, I've heard many people who ha- who have daughters who are struggling um, voice anger at the yeshiva system and the co- quote unquote freezer, and they said, "What right do they have to make a freezer if because of that they're going to be uh, girls who basically become agunas?" Um, what's your feeling about that? So the freezer itself is three months. Of course, you know, lowering gaps by three months on average would be helpful. It's not a solution. The the solution, you know, we're dealing with three or four year gaps sometimes. The solution is going to have to be bigger than that. The, the freezer in of itself is here for the ellis of the boys themselves at the Rosh Hashiva South, and most of the boys in BMG you know, accept this. That's why the freezer works, that it's better for their own learning, for their own, even for the Shadokhan really, to take a few months when they come back to get into learning and to have a good foundation, and they'll be in a much better place. They'll be ready, you know, to uh, to be icing into the from a stronger, stronger place. You know, whenever this issue of how hey, let's cut out the freezer and gain three months, it's been come up many, many times. Whenever it's been discussed, you know, really the answer has always been that it's not really a solution. We need to think bigger than that, and, so- and also. And also, let the, the boys could come earlier. Like, they could come earlier and have the freezer. Like, the, the freezer is built in. It's for their own benefit. And um, they can come earlier to Vishnash Gavaya and, um, and and have a freezer and be much more in their learning and in the Shabbat. So, question for you. Is there a solution? So, we, we, need, we need systemic change. And this whole episode is about difficult systemic problems. Um, the ultimate solution, you know, we recognize that all the problems come from Khurban. You know, we recognize all the problems come from that, and that's why we're in the three weeks. Um, when I first came to the show Solomon about this issue, he told me, he said, I definitely need to work in it, but I just want to tell you from a Hashkafa point of view that this is all part of the Horban. Like the, the Targum says in the beginning of Eicha, this was said, Nugais refers to the fact that we don't have the Shneyam and Taivin of Tuba'av and Yom Kippurim where these to marry off everyone. And, and definitely a complete solution. You know, we're waiting for the return of those Mayadim. But in the meantime, there's still a lot that we could do. We could do things on an individual level. We could also do things on the macro level. Some of the headlines that are in the news today about trying to have the Bach and Glory to throw a year earlier or even half a year earlier, um, have maybe have the girls when they come back from seminary. Maybe they don't have to start Shaduchim the second they come off the plane. Maybe they could settle down a little bit, pick themselves out, um, get settled, and then start Shaduchim a few months later. That, that, that could really help a lot, and that could help thousands of people, really. If you crush the numbers. How can people try? People who are concerned and hear these stories, how can they try to help the situation? So for individuals, I would say two things. Like I said before, there's the there's the macro problem, the systemic problem, that the way our system is set up, welcome start at a certain time, girls start at a certain time. They're starting at this huge gap, and when they start, they tend to be a, a similar large gap in the marriages. Um, and that systemic issue is going to require systemic change, and that's not really something that an individual could affect, besides for just, you know, if speaking to the, the decision-makers in the community, to the Rabbanan, to the Shiva, just speaking to them, 
sharing with them their pain and their concern, um, and that will help support, you know, create the create the momentum to make the systemic change. But on the individual level, there's a lot that individual could do. So because of the numerical problem, there's specific, let's say, segments of the Tibur who tend to bear the brunt. Like we said before, definitely people who are looking for Zivik Shaney, they're in really bearing the brunt of the crisis. It's, it, it's just, if we think, you know, the 25-year-old who, you know, hasn't heard a day in a year is going crazy. Imagine, the, you know, the 28-year-old who's divorced and who, what is she going to do? It's just heartbreaking. Um, so definitely think about the people who you know in your, in your circles who is being overlooked, who's bearing the brunt of this crisis, and try to help them individually, try to help them deal with the situation, you know, giving them moral support, rallying for them, and also trying to network for them. People who are don't have so many connections. People who are don't have you know everything going for them, quote unquote. Um, trying to help them out, trying to rub them shalom, trying to keep them involved, you know, keep them in the game. That's something every individual could do. And um, and and I guess just happening. I mean, we're in the few weeks. We're crying. Maybe maybe that's the only thing that 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 really everyone could do. And um, and like Rabbi Zayel said, you know, this is it's right in the beginning of Eicha. This this issue. This um, the grace of not having the sort of opportunities that, that we need and that uh, that we really we, we need Yeshua and, 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 and asking Hashem to bring Yeshua. Rabbi Yitzchak, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for your Bye-bye. Joining us now from the New York area is Sari, who's an older single. Welcome, Sari. Thank you for having me. So, Sari, what are some of the challenges that singles, you know, older singles, and I say older, I mean older than 25, older than 30, whatever it is. I have, have a number of sisters who got married in their 30s, so it's, I'm not far into it. What are some of the challenges that they have? I think one of the challenges that we can start with is being called older. A lot of times, like, for example, myself, if I'm out in the world, I'm actually not older. I'm considered someone in the prime of my life and, you know, definitely have a lot of opportunity. And then when I'm in the community, I'm looked at, you know, as that way past the years I'm supposed to get married and it's more of like you're a little late to the game. And what, what is the years that you're supposed to, like, what is it? Is it 21, 22? When, when do we become PSL prime, quote unquote? I think already when someone's 25, they're looked at like, oh, wow, like they really do have to get married. Like that, that's an issue. Um, and that 25-year-old might not feel like it's an issue. Yes, they probably want to get married, um, but they're living a, a full life and they, they have meaningful connections and they have a place where they belong. So, so, Talk to me about some of the challenges that maybe Jewish frumas singles have that in the Gaisha world you don't have. I think anyone who's single, even in the in you know in a secular world, if they're single, they want to get married, they want to be in a relationship. It could already be very hard. And someone in this community where it's very family centric and the norm is to start getting married at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, it could become very lonely. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of oh, if you're not married, maybe there's something wrong. And it's something that we can't control. And where does that judgment come from? Like, why? Why are we so judgmental? I think I think there's just a lot of expectations around the community. We're centered around Shabbos. We're centered around Yom Tov. We're centered around having children and building building the community. And if that's a very core value and someone is experiencing life without that, it could be lonely and they don't have a place in this environment. It's not very integrated for somebody who isn't married right away. So what, what do you do about it? What I do about it, you you have to really work hard to keep keep connected, to find places where you are welcome, to make those friendships with people in, let's say, a shul, in a neighborhood, 
uh, try, try travel, uh, you know, um, it's not easy. It's not easy. And a lot of times it's just sticking with your family, which also, you know, it's great. And they're very supportive. If you want a change of scenery, there isn't a lot of places that a single can go and feel like that's for them. There are single communities, but I don't, from my experience as a single, I don't want to be in a single community. I want to be in the general community and find places where it's integrated, where there are opportunities to go away for Shabbos meals, to go the programs that are very focused on putting the singles together with other families, to be able to travel into, you know, other cities. I know that when you get there, there are resources to help you. But usually if you go with a, as a couple, there are more options. When you go as a single, it's a little bit harder. As a girl, I'd say it's much harder. You don't really fit into a, a show-specific category. Share with us a story where you feel that the community, something happened that was particularly unsensitive. We we have a, a lot of people over here for Shabbos, and we had a girl um, tell us, and she was an attorney, she was in her mid-30s, and she said she was invited to a wedding, and she was put by the children's table, because they didn't have a table for yeah, singles. Yeah, that, that does happen. It does happen. Yeah. What as a community could we do better? But I think as a community, there's two sides where you can look at it. You can look at it, first of all, as a single. I think we have to take um, control of how we feel and how we react and how we treat ourselves. And then there's a part of the community where where we can give education. We can support the organizations that are trying to help the singles. We can give them resources. We could offer training, sensitivity training, show them this is what it's like to be single. This is what it's like to be a shaman. And together, this is how we can come to success. Sensitivity training, that's a beautiful idea. Give us an example. For example, I know a doctor for Shad Khanim. I think it's starting next week, and it's going to go for four weeks. And what they do is they're training Shad Khanim how they can show up, and they can, they can really be good listeners, and they can pick up and understand what a single needs from them and what, how they can be there to help a single. At the end of the day, we don't really know where our Zivik is going to come from and who the Shleach will be. But in the process, we can really have a much more enjoyable time if you have, like, a good connection to the shaman and the single, the single on the shaman. Okay. Um, the, the majority of, of singles, and I don't want to use the word older, so I'll say over 25, right, that you know in the Jewish community, um, I need, if you can give me some sensitivity training about what's a way to call them, because I, I want to refer to a certain group of singles, but if you could think of one, please let me know because I could use some sensitivity training. Um, are are they like, in your opinion, are they just nebishes? Are these accomplished people? Are they successful people outside of this one area where they just haven't married yet? How would you describe them? And I know it's a very large group, but overall, most most singles are very accomplished, and usually they're very very like self aware and further developed in personal life, in career, we have the time. And when the time is given to a, a person and there aren't that many distractions, if they use it correctly, there's so much growth and development that can, that can, that's available. And for myself, like, I'm boxed, I'm accomplished. I find a lot of areas in my life that are meaningful. The only hard part is that when someone meets me, the first thing they'll see is what I'm missing. I'm missing. I, I'm not married. And there's so much more to that. There's so many facets to life. And yes, I want to get married and I hope that's going to be very soon. But in the meantime, my day-to-day is very fulfilling. And there's definitely not, oh, if I don't get married today, then, you know, life is over. Life moves on. 
So you're bringing out a very powerful point. You say, you have two women, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, but I'm used to it. It's fine. Um, one girl gets married at 21, and can I her? She has five kids, right? And she's 30, and now she has five kids. And the other woman is 30 or 31, and she spent the last five years getting educated, learning different fields, traveling, seeing things, doing a lot of introspection because of all the, you know, the judgment that's happening. And you look at one person who's 31, and they have five kids, and the other person who's 31 maybe has spent the last 11 years or 10 years growing as an individual. Is that what you're sort of saying? Yeah, yeah. It shows that this world is full of all different kinds of people, and we have to respect that. And looking at a person for what they, like uh, a situation in their life is not necessarily fear. Like look at them for the characteristics, for what they stand for, their values, their goals, their dreams. Connect on, on a human level as opposed to connecting on, oh, you're single, let's try to solve this problem. It's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. It's a public problem. It's something that we can't hide, which makes it a lot more difficult. But it also makes the singles a lot stronger because we have to figure out a way to show up in life and put our good face forward, knowing that people are going to view us first in the community with a lens of, oh, there's something missing there, as opposed to, oh, wow, that's like an accomplished person. Oh, that's a cool person to get to know. That's someone who's educated. That's an interesting person I want to speak to. Uh, and it does happen. A lot of times the first thing that comes up is, you're single. Why are you single? And I don't know. I don't have control over that. But I would love if someone could connect before they see that I'm single, connect with my characters, my character traits, my values. Right. Now, I just want to make clear, I think the girl who had five babies from 21 to 31 is fantastic. But, and she's probably a great, a great mother and a great wife, but there, she, she hasn't had time either to get educated or to travel or to carry a, hold a big, you know, an important job. You just can't do all that. It's impossible. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are some that could do that. If we're speaking specifically about singles, and, and we could change the lens on how the community views it, I'm sure... People see singles as very successful, and they could do a lot. But we could zoom out a little bit and say, hey, are we really giving them the full benefit of, like, what they can, how they could contribute to the community, uh, where they are in, in their career? Um, what else, you know, how can I connect with them outside of, what can I suggest a person to you? And this is for the guys and the girls. It's not just for the girls. Okay. Sorry, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank Take you very care. much.